Section 20, Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Scientists. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Scientists by Albert Hubbard. Chapter 10, Part 2. Robert Owen had been over to America and had met Emerson, and very naturally caught it. When he returned home, he gave young Tyndall a copy of Emerson's first book, The Essay on Nature, published anonymously. Tyndall read and reread the book, and read it aloud to others, and spoke of it as a message from the gods. He also read every word that Carlyle put in print. It was Carlyle who introduced him to German philosophy and German literature, and fired him with a desire to see for himself what Germany was doing. Germany had still another mystic tie that drew him thitherward. It was at Marburg, Germany, that his illustrious namesake had published his translation of the Bible. At Marburg there was a university, small, t'was true, but its simplicity and the cheapness of living there were recommendations. So to Marburg he went. Tyndall found lodgings in a little street called Heretic's Row. Possibly there be people who think that Tyndall's taking a room in such a street was chance, too. Chance is natural law not understood. Marburg is a very lovely little town that clings amid a forest of trees to the rocky hillside overlooking the river Lawn. Tyndall was very happy at Marburg, and at times very miserable. The beauty of the place appealed to him. He was a climber by nature, and the hills were a continual temptation. But the language was new, and before this, his work had been all of a practical kind. College seems small and trivial after you've been in the actual world of affairs. But Tyndall did not give up. He rose every morning at six, took his cold bath, dressed, and ran up the hill half a mile and back. He breakfasted with the family that he might talk German. Then he dived into differential calculus and philosophical obtrusities. He was not sent to college, he went and he made college give up all it had. On the wall of his room, as a sort of ornamental frieze in charcoal, he wrote this from Emerson, High knowledge and great strength are within the reach of every man who unflinchingly enacts his best. Down in the town was a bronze bust of a man who wrote for it the following inscription. This is the face of a man who has struggled energetically. One might almost imagine that Hawthorne had received from Tyndall the hint which evolved itself into that fine story, The Great Stone Face. The bust just mentioned attracted John Tyndall for another reason. Carlyle had written of the man it symboled, Reader, to thee, thyself, even now, he has one counsel to give, the secret of his whole poetic alchemy. Think of living, thy life, wert thou the pitifulest of all sons on earth? is no idle dream but a solemn reality. It is thy own, it is all those hast, with which to front eternity. Work, then, even as he has done, like a star, unhasting and unresting. At Marburg, Tyndall was on good terms with the great Bunsen, and used to act as his assistant in making practical chemical experiments before his classes. These amazing things done by chemists in public are seldom of much value beyond giving a thrill to visitors who would otherwise drowse. It is like humor in an oration. It opens up the mental pores. 
Alexander Humboldt once attended a Bunsen lecture at Marburg and complimented Tyndall by saying, When I take up sleight of hand work, consider yourself engaged as my first helper. Tyndall's way of standing with his back to the audience, shutting off the view of Bunsen's hands while he was getting ready to make an artificial peal of thunder, made Humboldt laugh heartily. Humboldt thought so well of the young man who spoke German with an Irish accent that he presented him with an inscribed copy of one of his books. The volume was a most valuable one, for Humboldt published only in deluxe limited editions, and Tyndall was so overcome that all he could say was, I'll do as much for you some day. Not long after this, through loaning money to his fellow student, Tyndall found himself sadly in need of funds and borrowed two pounds on the book from an Hebrew Jew. That night, he dreamed that Humboldt found the volume in a second-hand store. In the morning, Tyndall was waiting for the pawnbroker to open his shop to get the book back ere the offense was discovered. Heiner Kane once inscribed a volume of his poems to a friend, and afterward discovered the volume on the counter of a second-hand dealer. He thereupon haggled with the bookman, bought the book, and beneath his first inscription wrote, with the renewed regards of H. Hayne. He then sent the volume for the second time to his friend. Tis possible that Tyndall had heard of this. In 1850, when Tyndall was 30 years of age, he visited London and, of course, went to the British institution. There he met Faraday for the first time and is welcomed by him. The British institution consists of a laboratory, a museum, and a lecture hall, and its object is scientific research. It began in a very simple way in one room and now occupies several buildings. It was founded by Benjamin Thompson, an American, and so it was but proper that its sister concern, the Smithsonian Institution, should have been founded by an Englishman. Sir Humphrey Davy, on being asked, What is your greatest discovery? replied, Michael Faraday. But this was a mere pleasantry. The truth being that it was Michael Faraday who discovered Sir Humphrey Davy. Faraday was a bookbinder's apprentice, a fact that should interest all good Roycrofters. Evenings, when Sir Humphrey Davy lectured at the British Institution, the young bookbinder was there. After the lecture, he would go home and write out what he had heard, with a few ideas of his own added. For it be known, taking notes at a lecture is a bad habit. Good reporters carry no notebooks. After a year, Faraday sent a bundle of his impressions and criticisms to Sir Humphrey Davy, anonymously. Great men seldom read manuscript that is sent to them unless it refers to themselves. At the next lecture, Sir Humphrey began by reading from Faraday's notes and begged that if the writer were present, he would make himself known at the close of the address. From this was to ripen a love like that of father and son. Every man who builds up such a work as did Sir Humphrey Davy is appalled when he finds time furrowing his face and whitening his hair to think how few indeed there are who can step in and carry his work on after he is gone. The love of Davy for the young bookbinder was almost feverish. He clutched at this bright, impressionable, and intent young man who entered so into the heart and soul of science. Nothing would do but he must become his assistant. Give up all and follow me, and Faraday did. Something of the same feeling must have swept over Faraday after his work of 25 years as director of the British Institution when John Tyndall appeared tall, thin, bronzed, animated, quoting Bunsen and Humboldt with an Irish accent. And so in time Tyndall became assistant to Faraday, 
then lecturer in natural history, and when Faraday died, Tyndall, by popular acclaim, was made Fullerian lecturer and took Faraday's place. This was to be his life work, and so placed before the world that all he said or did had a wide significance and an extended influence. Tyndall was always a most intrepid mountain climber. The Alps lured him like the song of the Lorelei, and the wonder was that his body was not left in some mountain crevasse, the most beautiful and poetic of all burials, he once said. But for him this was not to be, for fate is fond of irony. The only man who ever braved the full dangers of the Grand Canyon of the Colorado was killed by a suburban train in Chicago while on his wedding tour. Most bad men die in bed, tenderly cared for by trained nurses in white caps and big aprons. Tyndall climbed to the summit of the Matterhorn, ascended the so-called inaccessible peak of the Weeshorn, scaled Mont Blanc three times, and once was caught in an avalanche, riding toward death at the rate of a mile a minute. Yet he passed away from an overdose of a wrong dose of medicine given him through mistake by the hands of the woman he loved most. At one time Tyndall attempted to swim a mountain torrent. The stream, as if angry at his Irish assurance, tossed him against the rocks, brought him back in fierce eddies, and again and again threw him against a solid face of stone. When he was rescued, he was a mass of bruises, but fortunately no bones were broken. It was some days before he could get out, and in his sorry plight, bandaged so his face was scarcely visible. Spencer found him, Herbert. Do you believe in the actuality of matter? was John's first question. Both Tyndall and Huxley made application to the University of Toronto for positions as teachers of science, but Toronto looked askance, as all pioneer people do, at men whose college careers have been mostly confined to giving college absent treatment. Herbert Spencer avowed again and again that Tyndall was the greatest teacher he ever knew or heard of, inspiring the pupil to discover for himself, to do, to become, rather than imparting prosy facts of doubtful pith and moment. But Herbert Spencer, not being eligible to join a university club himself, was possibly not competent to judge. Anyway, England was not so finical as Canada, and so she gained what Canada lost. Tyndall paid a visit to the United States in the year 1872, and lectured in most of the principal cities and at all the great colleges. He was a most fascinating speaker, fluent, direct, easy, and his whole discourse was well-seasoned with humor. Whenever he spoke, the auditorium was taxed to its utmost, and his reception was very cordial, even in colleges that were considered exceedingly orthodox. Possibly some good people who invited him to speak did not know it was loaded, and so his earnest words in praise of Darwin and the doctrine of evolution occasionally came like unto a rumble of his own artificial thunder. I speak what I think is truth, but of course when I express ungracious facts, I try to do so in what will be regarded as not a nasty manner, said Tyndall, thus using that pet English word in a rather pleasing way. In his statement that the prayer of persistent effort is the only prayer that is ever answered, he met with a direct challenge at Oberlin. This gave rise to what, at the time, created quite a dust in the theological road and evolved the Tyndall prayer test. Tyndall proposed that 100 clergymen be delegated to pray for the patients in any certain ward of Bellevue Hospital. If, after a year's trial, there was a marked decrease in mortality in that ward, as compared with previous records, we might then conclude that 
prayer was efficacious, otherwise not. One good clergyman in Pittsburgh offered publicly to debate Darwinism with Tyndall, but beyond a little scattered shrapnel of this sort, the lecture tour was a great success. It netted just $13,000, the whole amount of which Tyndall generously donated as a fund to be used for the advancement of natural science in America. In 1885, this fund had increased to $32,000 and was divided into three equal parts and presented to Columbia, Harvard, and the University of Pennsylvania. The fund was still further increased by others who'd followed Professor Tyndall's example, and Columbia, from her share of the Tyndall Fund, I am told now supports two foreign scholarships for the benefit of students who show a special aptitude in scientific research. Professor James of Harvard once said, The impetus to popular scientific study caused by Professor Tyndall's lectures in the United States was most helpful and fortunate. Speaking but for myself, I know I am a different man and a better man for having heard and known John Tyndall. When John Tyndall died in the year 1893, Spencer wrote, It never occurred to Tyndall to ask what it was politic to say, but simply to ask what was true. The like has of late years been shown in his utterances concerning political matters, shown, it may be, with too great frankness. This extreme frankness was displayed also in private, and sometimes perhaps too much displayed, but everyone must have the defects of his qualities. Where absolute sincerity exists, it is certain now and then to cause an expression of a feeling or opinion not adequately restrained. But the contrast in genuineness between him and the average citizen was very conspicuous. In a community of Tyndalls, to make a rather wild supposition, there would be none of that flabbiness characterizing current thought and action, no throwing overboard of principles elaborated by painful experience in the past, an adoption of a hand-to-mouth policy unguided by any principle. He was not the kind of man who would have voted for a bill or clause which he secretly believed would be injurious out of what is euphemistically called party loyalty, or would have endeavored to bribe each section of the electorate by ad captum measures, or would have hesitated to protect life and property for fear of losing votes. What he saw right to do, he would have done, regardless of proximate consequences. The ordinary tests of generosity are very defective. As rightly measured, generosity is great in proportion to the amount of self-denial entailed, and where ample means are possessed, large gifts often entail no self-denial. Far more self-denial may be involved in the performance, on another's behalf, of some act that requires time and labor. In addition to generosity under its ordinary form, which Professor Tyndall displayed in an unusual degree, he displayed it under a less common form. He was ready to take much trouble to help friends. I've had personal experience of this. Though he had always in hand some investigation of great interest to him, and though, as I've heard him say, when he bent his mind to the subject he could not with any facility break off and resume it again, yet, when I've sought scientific aid, information, or critical opinion, I've never found the slightest reluctance to give me his undivided attention. Much more markedly, however, was this kind of generosity shown in another direction. Many men, while they are eager for appreciation, manifest little or no appreciation of others, and still less go out of their way to express it. With Tyndall, it was not thus. 
he was eager to recognize achievement. Notably in the case of Michael Faraday, and less notably, though still conspicuously in many cases, he has bestowed much labor and sacrificed many weeks in setting forth the merits of others. It was evidently a pleasure to him to dilate on the claims of fellow workers. But there was a derivative form of this generosity calling for still greater eulogy. He was not content with expressing appreciation of those whose merits were recognized, but he used energy unsparingly in drawing the attention of the public to those whose merits were unrecognized. Time and time, in championing the cause of such, he was regardless of the antagonism he aroused and the evil he brought upon himself. This chivalrous defense of the neglected and ill-used has been, I think by few, if any, so often repeated. I have myself more than once benefited by his determination, quite spontaneously shown, that justice should be done in the apportionment of credit, and I have with admiration watched like actions of his in other cases, cases in which no consideration of nationality or of creed interfered in the least with his insistence on equitable distribution of honors. In this undertaking to fight for those who were unfairly dealt with, he displayed in another direction that very conspicuous trait, which as displayed in his alpine feats, has made him to many persons chiefly known. I mean courage, passing very often into daring, and here let me, in closing this little sketch, indicate certain mischiefs which this trait brought upon him. Courage grows by success. The demonstrated ability to deal with dangers produces readiness to meet more dangers, and is self-justifying where the muscular power and the nerve habitually prove adequate. But the resulting habit of mind is apt to influence conduct in other spheres, where muscular power and nerve are of no avail, is apt to cause the daring of dangers which are not to be met by strength of limb or by skill. Nature, as externally presented by precipice, ice slopes, and crevasses, may be dared by one who is adequately endowed, but nature, as internally represented in the form of physical constitution, may not be thus dared with impunity. Prompted by high motives, John Tyndall tended too much to disregard the protests of his body. Over-application in Germany caused absolute sleeplessness at one time. I think he told me for more than a week, and this with kindred transgressions, brought on that insomnia by which his afterlife was troubled, and by which his power for work was diminished. For, as I've heard him say, a sound night's sleep was followed by a marked exaltation of faculty. And then, in later life, came the daring which, by its results, brought his active career to a close. He conscientiously desired to fulfill an engagement to lecture at the British Institution, and he was not deterred by fear of consequences. He gave the lecture, notwithstanding the protest which for days before his system had been making. The result was a serious illness threatening, as he had thought at one time, a fatal result, and notwithstanding a year's furlough for the recovery of health, he was eventually obliged to resign his position. But for this defiance of nature, there might have been many more years of scientific exploration, pleasurable to himself and beneficial to others, and he might have escaped that invalid life for which for a long time he had to bear. In this case, however, the penalties of invalid life had great mitigations, mitigations such as fall to the lot of few. It is conceivable that the physical discomforts and mental weariness which ill health brings 
may be almost, if not quite, compensated by the pleasurable emotions caused by unflagging attentions and sympathetic companionship. If this ever happens, it happened in his case. All who've known the household during these years of nursing are aware of the unmeasured kindness he has received without ceasing. I happen to have had special evidence of this devotion on the one side and gratitude on the other, which I do not think I am called upon to keep to myself, but rather to do the contrary. In a letter I received from him some half-dozen years ago, referring, among other things, to Mrs. Tyndall's self-sacrificing care of him, occurred this sentence. She has raised my ideal of the possibilities of human nature. End of section 20